I invite you to stand now and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 95. Also a reminder, uh, kiddos, we have a sermon notes sheet on the back table. Uh, if you didn't get one of those when you came in, you can feel free to go ahead and grab one of those now. Just a great way to uh, follow along in the, in the text of, of God's word and uh, take some notes and maybe something you can uh, share with your parents when you get home. <clears throat> All right, Psalm 95. If you do have the Pew Bible, that is on page 499. Please pay attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, as we come now to the Psalms, as we kick this all off with Psalm 95, help us to see what it means, God, to be a worshiping people. God, to know you, to lift our voices to you, to give our lives to you. So, Father, give us eyes to see what that looks like for us, individually and as a church. Father, speak to us this morning through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Well, I was a psychology minor in college, uh, also took some pastoral counseling classes when I was in seminary. I've read several books on counseling, and uh, some of you probably are interested in that topic as well. Maybe you've uh, read some books or some articles. Maybe you've taken some classes on counseling. And one of the basic tenets, one of the things that you will be told as someone who, who does counseling is to avoid all and never type language. As a counselor or a mediator, you should avoid sweeping statements that lump people and their experiences together. Similarly, this is good advice for those who are being counseled. It's a good idea in marriage, guys, especially ladies too, but it's good advice in parenting. It's good advice in all of our relationships, 
to avoid always and never statements, right? Like you always <laughs> fill in the blank or you never fill in the blank. It's good advice to avoid those things. I won't say you should always avoid those things, but almost always. But however, in spite of all that, as those who believe that God is a God of truth and that he has revealed himself to us both in creation, what we call general revelation, and that he has revealed, us, revealed himself to us in his word, by his spirit, and through his son, what we call special revelation, we can and we should at times make all or no one type of claims because God makes those types of claims about us. Four examples. Following the creation, fall, and redemption, and consummation paradigm, just give you four examples of some all or never statements. Creation. We are all made in the image of God. Every single human being is created in the image of God. Fall. We are all dead in our sin as a result of the fall. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 53.3 and Romans 3, uh, 10 through 12. Redemption. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Romans 10.13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then consummation. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, Romans 10, 14, and Philippians 2, 10, and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The title of the message this morning is Worship Matters. And I want to begin with this sweeping statement of fact. We are all worshipers. We are all worshipers. Every single person who has ever lived has been a worshiper because we are created to worship God. First question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Which we've recited many times here, you've heard it, and we're going to keep banging this drum because it's so important. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. A lot of people like John Piper's little addition to that. He says it's to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Simply states the fact that we will be giving glory to God. We will be worshiping God forever because we were created to worship. In John 4, a familiar passage, Jesus and the woman at the well. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Must. That's pretty strong language from Jesus. And it's because worship matters. I'm going to be emphasizing that a lot this summer as we go through the Psalms. Now, there is a little play on words here. If I gave you a second to think about it, you might catch it. When I say worship matters, I'm thinking about it in two different ways. The first is a verb. Worship 
matters. It's important. The second is a noun. Worship matters. The matters of worship, the elements or uh, the things pertaining to worship. Psalm 95 is a great psalm to begin our series because it highlights each prong of this two-pronged approach, the importance of worship and the elements of worship. So if you're taking notes here, there's four things that I want us to consider about why worship matters, the importance of worship. It matters that we worship. It matters who we worship. It matters how we worship, and it matters why we worship. First, it matters that we worship. Again, we were created for worship. In John Piper's famous book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, he begins with this provocative opening paragraph. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Pause and think about that for a second. Missions exists because worship doesn't. What is Piper arguing here? He goes on to explain it. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. It is important that we worship. Second, it matters who we worship. Confessed earlier in the Apostles' Creed that, believe, that we believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit. This is massively important. We believe in the triune God who has revealed himself to us in his word, by his spirit, and through his Son, and he alone is worthy of our worship. It matters who we worship. Third, it matters how we worship in spirit and in truth, as God has prescribed. This is the conversation about the elements of worship. Look at your insert there. Again, this handout with the schedule for the summer. These are some of the key elements of worship that are given to us by God, things that he has commanded us to do. These things inform under that category list here. These things inform how we order our worship service. So as we look through these different elements, we're going to be we're going to be preaching through different psalms this summer that highlight each of those things and we're going to be looking at this question, how should we worship? How does God call us to worship? Now this isn't an exhaustive list. We're not covering every single thing. Uh, we cover most of of what we uh, the elements we have in our service, uh, but this again, this does highlight those those central things that we we see uh, in God's word, especially in the Psalms. So basically going to address uh, this third and fourth part together in our sermon series, how do we worship and why do we worship? Why do we do what we do? So the fourth thing then is it matters why we worship. 
We worship God for who he is and for what he has done for us. We're going to see that very clearly here today in Psalm 95. So this is basically going to be a sermon of fours here. These four things, that, who, how, and why we worship. Then we're going to break Psalm 95 down into four sections. And each, four, each of these four sections are going to reflect one of the elements of our liturgy. So first, first thing we're going to see here is come joyfully together in verses one and two. Come joyfully together. This is the call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The worship leader here opens with an invitation to join him in his praise of God. It's basically saying, come on, people, let's sing to God. Join with me as we praise God together. God, this rock of our salvation. There is this reminder. We see these many descriptions of who God is throughout this psalm. And this first one, the Lord, the rock of our salvation is so important. We come to praise the God who has saved us. The God, L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh, the covenant God who has called us to himself, who has brought us to himself, who has saved us from sin and death. We worship him for who he is. It's not meant to be some stoic, emotionless response and experience. It's okay to get excited. It's okay to, to raise your hands, even in a Presbyterian worship service. It's okay to shout hallelujah sometimes. Our noise should be joyful. Coming to worship shouldn't be drudgery. Oh, have to go to church and sing to God again. You know, the God who saved me from my sin. yippee ki No, we should sing joyfully. We should rejoice. That doesn't mean you run around being this annoying, like in, your, in everybody's face person, but we should be excited to praise God, right? We should be excited to sing. We should read the Psalms and it should be this exuberant experience of what God has done and, and to rejoice with his people together. Notice that word together that I use for this section. The call here is not individualistic. It's not just me and Jesus and I don't need anyone else. But the emphasis here is clearly on gathered corporate worship. What we're doing right now. Come into his presence in verse 2 is meant means to gather together in the sanctuary for worship. Come before God. Come literally means come before the face of God. This is why we begin our service with a call to worship. It's an acknowledgement that God is calling us to himself. God gets the first word. It's not your pastors and your elders getting up here and saying, come on, everybody, it's time, right? God gets that first word. It's not our invitation. It's not our agenda. It's his. And the invitation from God to his people is to come before him and to offer him thanksgiving and praise, as we see in our second part. Part two is because God is worthy. So come joyfully together because God is worthy in verses three through five. This is the adoration section. There are a lot of things in life to get excited about. 
There are a lot of things that we can shout joyfully about. We would do well, I think, to ask ourselves, are we more excited about, fill in the blank, anything in our lives than we are about the Lord? Are we more excited about the Packers and how good Jordan Love is going to be? Are we more excited about our summer plans and all these things that are going on in our lives? The psalmist wants to blow the lid off of our weak little attempts to put other things in God's place. He does so by painting this great picture of God's worthiness of our worship. Our English word for worship comes from the old English word, worth-ship. Literally means that God is worthy of our worship. Now, why is this according to the psalmist? As we see here, it's because in verse 3, because he is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now, this declaration of God's kingship here is fitting because Psalms 92 to 100 are what we might call the divine kingship psalms or the royal psalms. There is lots of language in these psalms about God being our king. It says that he is a king above all gods. Now, all of these lowercase g gods, they are below this great God, this great king. Now, obviously, those gods are not actually gods at all, but whatever imagined gods there are out there, whatever imagined gods the people might be giving their lives and giving their affection and attention to, they all must bow down before this great God because his rank and his rule is above all. Now, the greatness of God is seen elsewhere in the Psalms. Psalm 5710 says, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Now notice this creational and spatial imagery here in Psalm 5710. God's steadfast love is great to the heavens and his faithfulness to the clouds. That's exactly what we see here in verse 4 of Psalm 95, as the greatness of God is described in relation to his hands. This is this anthropomorphism. It's ascribing human language, human characteristics to God. Obviously, God does not have hands, does not have physical hands. But the imagery here is used to describe and display his power and greatness. In his hand are the depths of the earth. And the heights of the mountains also are his. So from low to high, we get this imagery that everything is in God's hands. And we get this horizontal picture, the sea, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So from the deepest of depths to the highest of heights to far and wide, covering the sea, covering the land, God made it all, and he holds all of it in his hand. It all belongs to him. That catchy little kid's song, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. I texted James this week and I said, can we add that song? He's like, seriously? I was like, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to sing that. But we could, right? He does have the whole world in his hands. He sustains it all. He holds everything. These truths ought to fuel our adoration. We should look up, look down, look left, look right. It all belongs to him. It's all upheld by him. And made by his hands. And the thing that we need to acknowledge here, as we said, that 
everyone is a worshiper. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, when he describes our problem with adoration. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Again, general revelation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These are those lowercase g gods. But we don't do this, do we? I mean, we don't have carved images of things resembling people and birds and animals and creeping things sitting around our house. We don't go home and bow down to this, you know, little animal that's on our mantle. But Paul's argument through the next two chapters is that even though we might not do those things, even those of us who are religious, we still find ways to fail to adore God as we ought to. Paul's argument in chapter three, which I quoted at the beginning, which he quotes from David in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, is that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I mean, shouldn't someone in the psychology department have told David and then Paul, hey, guys, like this language is a little bit exclusive. You might hurt somebody's feelings if you tell them that no one is good and no one really seeks after God. But why do I share this? Am I just trying to be some Debbie Downer here? I just want us all to feel really bad about ourselves so we can try to do better? No, not at all. It's because our failure in adoration, which is due to our worship of self and our worship of other things, that failure to adore as we ought must logically lead to the next step, and that is confession. We see that next in verses six and seven. Come humbly. Come humbly. The call here, again, is a corporate call. Let us, oh, come, people, let us, the worship leader includes himself here. Let us, and then he lists three things. Let us worship, let us bow down, and let us kneel. These three words in the Hebrew are all synonymous. They all mean the same thing. They mean to come and to get on our faces before the Lord, our maker. Now, again, we're not saying, all right, clear some space here in the aisles, right? Everybody lay down, prostrate, prostrate yourselves before the Lord, get on your face. 
But this is a heart attitude. It's a picture of humble submission to our God and our King. It's an acknowledgement in our hearts that he is holy and that we dare not approach his throne haughtily or carelessly. But it's also not a picture of a hard and a ruthless king. If that is your view of approaching God, let this verse be a comfort to you. If you belong to him, this verse should be a comfort to you. For that is what is communicated here in the first three lines of verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, when God is called our maker in verse 6, it's probably not referring to his work in creation. It means that he has taken us to himself and he has made us his people. It's talking here about his work of redemption. In Psalm 100, verse 3, which we're going to be looking at next week, It highlights the same reality. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, same word here, is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It's what we see here in Psalm 95. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Notice again the mention of God's hand. We saw that he holds all of the world in his hand. We also see that we are the sheep of his hand. This is language of a shepherd who is tender, who comes alongside of us. How do we view God's hand toward us? Is God's hand for us or against us? Is he heavy handed or is he gentle? Is he punishing or is he merciful? Is he constantly disappointed in us or does he delight in us? Is he harsh or loving? The imagery in Psalm 95 ought to cause us to rejoice in Jesus' description of himself as our good shepherd in John 10. The one who saves, the one who gives safe pasture to all who enter through the sheep the sheepfold through him who is who calls himself the door of the sheep the one who laid down his life and had authority to take it up again the one who said that his sheep follow him for they know and they listen to his voice now i wish the christian life was some picturesque scene of sheep grazing safely in this field with no danger on any side right just clouds and rainbows and everything is awesome all the time that's not the picture that jesus gives us there are thieves and robbers there are those who try to climb over the wall and to enter in a way that other than the door they seek to steal and to kill and destroy but our good shepherd came that we might have life and have it abundantly Therefore, it is imperative that we hear our good shepherd's voice, that we follow him. So the question for us today is, do we know him? Do we know our shepherd? Do we hear his voice and do we follow him? Because the alternative is not pretty. The alternative is getting devoured by what is false. 
by wolves, by false teachers, as Jesus describes them. So it is of utmost importance that we humbly bow before our maker and our shepherd, that we confess our sins to him and that we listen to his voice. Our very lives are at stake. We'll see this in our last section. In the last line of verse 7 through the end of the psalm, verse 11, listen up and loosen up. Listen up and loosen up. This is the element of instruction. As I mentioned earlier, this seems like an odd way to end this psalm that has been so filled with all this joy and thanksgiving to God, all these reminders of who God is and what he has done for us. But if we pause and think about this, it makes total sense, doesn't it? Especially as we think about the flow of the liturgy. We've seen the call to worship. We've seen adoration. We've seen confession. Now we come to instruction. We come to the people of God hearing from God through his word. We do that in a few ways here. We do it through the reading of God's word and through the preaching of God's word. It's really important that we understand how this works. The reading of God's word is God's word directly proclaimed to us without any comment, without us having to explain things. We just simply stand up here and read God's word. The preaching of God's word is God's word explained and illustrated and applied to us through a human instrument. When Paul charges Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, notice how he fills out this job description. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, always, right? At all times, be prepared. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. How? How is Timothy and how are those who preach the word to reprove, rebuke, and exhort? By domineering over them and making them feel guilty and by showing them how holy and godly you are? No. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. With complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Notice the problem here. Itching ears, accumulating their own teachers, and turning away from listening to the truth. My job, the job of every pastor or every young man training for ministry who stands in this pulpit, is to declare God's word to God's people so that they will hear God's voice. Look with me at the cover of the worship guide. There's a quote on here from a book that I may have recommended last week or the week before. A book from a guy named uh, Jonathan Landry Cruz, who is a minister in the OPC. This book is called What Happens When We Worship. If you are, uh, Someone like Corey, who's very excited about reading lots of books and buying lots of books and having your shelf overflowing with books. But seriously, if you have time and bandwidth this summer to read another book in conjunction with A Praying Life, 
the book What Happens When We Worship would be a fantastic book. Uh, he, go, he does go through different elements of the liturgy, which we're explaining. He gives the, the heart behind uh, why we're called to worship and what, what happens when we worship. Obviously, the name of the, book, name of the book is What Happens When We Worship. So a uh, great addition. But listen, listen to this. This is what uh, Jonathan Landry Cruz says. He says, corporate worship is a time when we come together and God audibly, through the ministry of the word, reminds us of the important reality that he is king and we are his subjects. He is Lord and we are his servants. He is shepherd and we are his sheep. He is God and we are his creatures. We must do what he says. Since submission doesn't come naturally to us, we need to learn it. It isn't easy, so we need to work at it. Worship is where we learn and are trained in the disciplines that are crucial to the Christian life. Trust, obedience, submission, or in a word, faith. The God-centered worship service is the garden in which faith is planted, grown, and cultivated. Love that imagery there. The God-centered worship service is the garden in which faith is planted, grown, and cultivated. So the emphasis there is to hear, to listen up. End of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, listen up. And then loosen up. Do not harden your hearts. In Jeremiah 17, the Lord is addressing the issue of his people breaking the Sabbath. He mentions that the people were not keeping the command that he had given to their fathers. And he's speaking uh, there of the Sabbath specifically and the Ten Commandments more generally. In verse 23, this is what the Lord says, Jeremiah 17, 23. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. Now, in Jeremiah 17, this word for stiffened is the same word that's used here in Psalm 95 for hardened. So you see this, this attitude, this posture of hardening our hearts or stiffening our necks against the Lord. That is what God accused his people of. Here in Psalm 95, the reminder is to not be like the fathers in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. Both of these instances where the people grumbled against Moses and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They said it would be better to, to go back there and to be slaves back in Egypt than it would be to die in the wilderness. Both instances where Moses struck the walk, the rock and water came out to quench the thirst of a weary, ungrateful people. Both instances where God showed mercy by not destroying their people. But their sin was not without consequences. They did wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They did not experience rest in the land due to their unwillingness to hear God's voice and to follow his instructions. As we saw in the New Testament reading in Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews picks up on this theme of entering God's rest. In Hebrews chapter 3, he quoted all of Psalm 95, 7 through 11, and he warned Christians not to have evil, unbelieving hearts. The same focus on not hardening your hearts, not stiffening your neck. Then in chapter four, he argues that the conquest of the land under Joshua after 40 years 
wandering in the wilderness. This was not the actual rest that God had promised, but that there remains a Sabbath rest, a future Sabbath rest for the people of God. And we are encouraged as God's people. We are encouraged to strive to enter that rest so that we may not fall by the same sort of disobedience. In other words, if we hear his voice, and we do, let us not harden our hearts like they did. But at the end of the day, our striving to enter that rest is not a striving on our own strength. And it's not a striving that is only future. The good news of the gospel for us is that if we are in Christ, we have already entered that rest. There is a rest for the people of God. There is a rest for our weary souls that we genuinely do experience in this life because of who we are in Christ, because of what he has done for us. And simultaneously, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is the not yet. Listen to the exhortation that comes in the last three verses of Hebrews 4, comes after what we read earlier. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our time of need is always on this side of eternity. And the formula is drawing near to the throne of grace with confidence. This is worship. It's what God calls us to do because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us then adore him. Let us confess our sins and let us receive God's instruction from his word. Let us worship God in a way that, in the way that he has prescribed to us in his word. For he is worthy of all that we have. He is worthy of all that we are and he is worthy of all that we do. Let us pray. God, we are reminded in this great psalm that we are all worshipers. It is unavoidable. We will worship something. The question is, what or who will we worship? Will we worship the created things or will we worship you, the creator? Thank you, God, that you have not left us to ourselves to figure out what worship looks like. You have not left us to imagine what it is to, to come before you, to give you praise and honor and glory. You have not left us to devise our own schemes and our own plans. You have given us clear instructions in your word. God, may we so order our lives and so order our worship in this way, in a way that honors you and brings glory to your name, our maker, 
our shepherd, the one who leads us and guides us. May we be a people who hear your voice and who follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.